Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing going through the New Testament. And while we finished up the book of Romans a few weeks ago, we're, we're if you're in real time, we're in first Corinthians, but we had the opportunity to get Dr. Scott McKnight to come back, uh, who I, th- I want to say he was the first guest we had on once you relaunched the podcast. No, uh, once Mimi I popped on. Was. We had oh, that's right. Mimi yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. So, but yeah, an early one. So we have a return guest in Scott and we're going to kind of talk through Romans a little bit and revisit that. So uh, for those of our friends who don't remember Scott's credentials, shame on you, you should, (laughs) but uh, Rob, do you want to restate a little bit about uh, what Scott's contributed to literally the world of Christian scholarship over the last number of years? Yeah. Thanks very much. So, so Scott McKnight is a recognized authority on the new Testament, early Christianity and historical Jesus. He's the author of about 75 books or so, give or take five or 10, right? He's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, given interviews on radios across the nation, appeared on the television, and regularly speaks at local churches, conferences, colleges, and seminaries in the U.S. and abroad. His blog, The Jesus Creed, which I believe now is on Christianity Today. Is that right, Scott? Yes, and I also uh, do something on, uh, I'm more faithful to Substack, the newsletter. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, very good. So, yeah. uh, so he attained his PhD at the University of Nottingham, has been a professor for more than three decades. He's the author of the award-winning The Jesus Creed, Loving God and Loving Others, which if you haven't read, turn the Mm -hmm. podcast off, go read it, come on back. Uh, It's fantastic. He's also written a book called Reading Romans Backwards, which is a commentary on the book of Romans. And I, Scott, was so impressed with it. You know, I've read N.T. Wright's commentary. I just read all these commentaries, Michael Gorman's, when it just came out, the new one. And then I went to yours. I'm like, okay, well, we'll see how, you know, well, I, these guys covered it all. And then you just gave this perspective. They're like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. So we want to thank you for being on with us uh, and appreciate your time with us. And just to, to kind of talk about the book of Romans. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, following uh, Tom Wright and uh, who I heard wrote his commentary on Romans in one month. Oh, you got to be and, kidding me. I know. I know. He, he does know Romans. And um, I just read Michael Gorman's because I'm yeah. I've written uh, in my everyday Bible study series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just finished writing the book on Romans. So excellent. So, so, so this is fresh so on your mind. Romans Romans is pretty fresh. Yeah. Good. Good. Very good. So uh, you propose in your book basically reading Romans backwards by suggesting that what we really need to do to understand the book of Romans and tell me if, if this is correct and, and elaborate on it is to go to Romans 14 and 15 and understand the conflict that was happening in the church there, because those are the people to whom Paul's speaking to, essentially, in his argument. And then you read Romans 12 and 13, and then we go 9 through 11, and then we go back and read Romans 1 through 8. So can you kind of elaborate on that for us and how that under- impacts our understanding of the book? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people think of Romans as a as Paul's systematic theology. In fact, right. I was taught that when I was in college, that this is Paul's systematic theology for all his churches. And, you know, there's reason to think this because Christian theology that we inherit in the Christian church, people who write on systematic theology, have been so absorbed in the categories of the Book of Romans that we begin to think of it that way. But... um. If you read the book of Romans carefully, now listen, uh, Romans is a difficult book to read. The average person doesn't get through it. Right. Uh, they 
get a little bit worn down in Romans 4, and then 5 and 6, and pretty good. 7, what's going on? 8, right. now that sounds good. And then 9 through 11, they just get bamboozled. And by the time they get to chapter 12, they know chapter 12, 1 to 2, and then, okay, let's just close this book and go on to Galatians. Right. It's such a <laughs> nice anthology of this book of Romans. So it's a difficult book. It's theoretical at, right. at a level that some of Paul's letters are not quite that theoretical. But when you read Romans 14 to 15, you realize Paul is talking about some really concrete situations. And these this situation is so intense about the strong and the weak, which I like to translate as the powerful and the powerless, the mm. donatoi and the odd donatoi in Greek, um, that you, you it's so intense, it's so graphic and detailed that you have to think he knows stuff going on in that church that is dividing mm. one group of believers from another group. And I think the so-called strong are Gentile believers of higher status, so more powerful people okay. in society, socially, and the weak are Jewish believers, um, and powerless means they don't have as much social status. Um, and there, there's so much there that if we ignore that, when we read the rest of Romans, we're missing out in the entire pastoral context of Paul's letter. Now, there's another side to this, and that is... Um, I didn't develop this as much in the in the book reading Romans backwards as probably could be developed. I'd like to see someone write a monograph on this. Um, I believe Romans, especially one through four and nine through eleven, are are a deposit of Paul's interactions and his responses on the mission field as he was uh, forming churches. So there's such a, a back and forth, a mm. question and answer. It's like Paul's heard all these questions and he's putting down his answers because he knows they're going to ask him too. Everywhere Paul goes in his mission trips, when he forms a church, the book of Acts intimates this pretty clearly that Jewish believers had some very serious problems with Paul's message, that he could believe that Gentile believers could come into the people of God, Israel, and not become observant of the law. So I, I see Romans 1 through 4 and 9 through 11 especially as uh, a reflection of what Paul has learned, the questions he's going to be asked, and how to respond to those questions that he routinely encountered on his mission trips. So Romans 12, Romans 13, 14 and 15 actually tell us the tensions in the book, in the house churches of Rome, and the whole letter is responding to that tension between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the early house churches of Rome, of course in Corinth, probably in Ephesus, everywhere he founded these churches, Thessaloniki, nothing had seemed to happen at Athens, mm -hmm. and probably at Corinth as well. 
I mean, he uses the strong and weak language in First Corinthians as well. Mm -hmm. so. Right, right. Yeah, and that's something we might want to ask you about in a, in a little bit also, because it's interesting to see if there's divergence there. So in light of that, then, if this is the framework for the conversation, what? how would you summarize Romans 1 through 4 or Romans 1 through 8? You know, what's Paul's response to the the privileged and the powerful versus those who are uh, less privileged and less powerful. Okay. I mean, this is, uh, Rob, uh, anyone who teaches Romans knows that big perspective is the only way to make sense for, for students. Right. Good. If you start getting into too many details, right. people's like, boy, who cares? And so I think Romans 1, 18 through 32, it's such an unusual opening to a letter i mean it's it, in a sense it's rude it's 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 weird you go all of a sudden the wrath of god coming down and you're going whoa this is not the way to begin a conversation with a church you've never been to okay so i read that and i think eh, he's pretty hot and he's describing gentiles and paganism idolatry sexual sins in ways that are very typical for Jews. And mm. we have this in contemporary Jewish writings. But it is chapter 2, verse 1, mm -hmm. that unlocks what Paul is doing in chapter 1. You read yeah. chapter 1 and you think, boy, Paul really sees sinfulness mm -hmm. in the Gentile world. And it's easy to, to read it that way, especially if you stop at the end of chapters and then move on for the day. But suddenly in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you, mm -hmm. therefore, have no excuse. And you think, what in the world? He's moved from they, the Gentiles, right. to you. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Mm -hmm. And that is such a shift. And so here's here's what I think is going on, Rob. Vinny, I, I think Paul is setting up the person in 2-1. I call that person the judge. He's setting him up by laying out in his right in front of him typical Jewish criticisms mm -hmm. of pagan Gentiles who are idolaters and filled with sexual sins. So he gives a stereotype of the Gentile idolater. Okay. And the typical Jew is going to say, give it to him, Paul. This is what we've been saying. This is the way they behave. This is the way they live. This is so wrong. And then Paul flips that script and says, I've got you now exactly where I want you. Right. You have a problem yourself. Right. And so... This, what is interesting to me in chapter two, is that Paul now starts fashioning a Jewish believer, someone who calls themselves Jew. Mm -hmm. This is the word he uses. It's actually Judean in a more tr literal translation, Judean. Um, he, he starts using the word krino, the Greek word for judge, and he uses it often here, and he doesn't use it again for any human activity till he gets to chapter 14 and 15. Mm. So I think that the, and the one who he uses that 
Krino word for in chapters 14 and 15 is the weak or the Jewish believers. Hmm. So I think chapter 1, 18 through 32 is not simply, uh, it does do this in some ways. It's not um, a criticism, it's not a condemnation of how Gentiles act, because actually a lot of Gentiles didn't act like this. Mm -hmm. This is pretty, pretty remarkable stuff. Mm -hmm. This is the notorious sins of notorious sinners. Right. So the judge of chapter two is the weak, and they're sitting in judgment on Gentiles. And Paul wants them to realize that they are sinners, just like Gentile sinners. Because once you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Mm -hmm. So I don't think Paul is setting up the message of salvation so right. much okay. as he is already engaged in the problem he faces in his mission churches that Jewish believers struggle with Gentile believers for their past sinfulness and for their proclivity to sinfulness, and that they don't observe the law is just an illustration of how sinful they are. And so I think Paul rhetorically sets up the judge in chapter 2, and it is the week of chapter 14 and 15. Now, here's oh, okay. one other thing. Go ahead, yeah. If you read chapter Romans chapters 2 through 4, you're going to encounter an absolute abundance of questions. Hmm. And if you underline all the questions in your Bible, I think there are about 64 of these questions. You will, in Romans 2 through 4 and 9 through 11, you will realize that Paul is interrogating these audiences. Mm. And there is a level of intensity of these questions. And here's why uh, we need to point this out. When a first century reader of this letter, and I think it was probably Phoebe, mm -hmm. read the letter and asked the question, she waited for people to respond. Mm. She didn't just read it the way we do, so we can right. preach a sermon on the text. She read it and, and opened it up for questions or answers, and people were responding. And when you begin to read the letter that way, it gets hyper-intense, uber-intense. So, And there's the only other place in the book of Romans, like Romans 2 through 4 with question and answer, is Romans 9 through 11. Mm -hmm. These two passages, it's like Paul has two um approaches to responding to the tensions that he creates in all these synagogues when Jews start believing and Gentiles start believing and then they have trouble because the Gentiles don't want to follow the law Paul has learned these are the two approaches that he can he can respond to these questions with I'm curious uh on your perspective on uh the strong and the weak and how it relates to, I don't want to say a traditional, but maybe a more popular understanding of strong and weak, because the way it, it's usually understood is something to the effect of the weak, uh, you know, could be understood as the the Jewish believers where the strong are the Gentiles. And it's, it's these scruples that are going on. It's more just about figuring out how to maybe uh, how to coexist in, in that regard and, and have an, an irenic spirit, obviously, you know, and, and not mm -hmm. causing someone else to stumble. Would you say your perspective kind of adds on to that, or is it just completely different? Well, I don't think strong is necessarily 
Paul's viewpoint, and he's affirming mm. of that. If you if you look at Romans fifteen one, the language moves to donatoi and adonatoi. Mm-hmm. Mm. These are social labels, stereotypes, social descriptions. This is a social construct of people's status in the Roman world. And so there are some people claiming social status, the powerful, and they have power over others, and and Paul calls them powerless. And the powerful are expected to treat the powerless in a Christian manner that they haven't been treating. So to me, I think the the and and Paul one time says, "We who are strong." Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not sure that mm-hmm. means Paul's agreeing with okay. strong on all parts. Uh, he might, he might in in many ways, but he doesn't like their attitude. He mm-hmm. sees them as despising and looking down upon the weak, or the the powerless. So he doesn't like their attitude. He might agree with some of their theology. Um. So I, I wonder now, Vinny, if I've answered your question. I kind of. I think it's just uh, you're you're framing it in a different way, which I think is good. It's helpful, uh, but it's it's yeah. also interesting because it's not. It doesn't fit into the traditional category of how a, a passage like this is normally taught, and and. It, it's also, I think it's helpful because you're taking a look at the book in a completely different way where oftentimes in traditional settings, you get to 14, you know, and, and chapters 12 and beyond are merely like, okay, here's kind of like this anecdotal way of living now. Yeah. I don't think, I think people wear out by the time they get to 12 okay. and, and, mm-hmm. and because of that, they don't see the significance of this context for it. Mm-hmm. But the, how would you say the traditional reading of the weak and the strong is? Usually from what I've seen, it's you have the Jewish believer who is the one who's still hung up on, oftentimes you have the legalism uh, uh, phrase thrown around. So they're the ones that are still hung up on this former way of living that they don't need to live under anymore because you're not, you know, we're not under the law. It's by faith. It's the law of Christ that we're living in. And so these Gentile believers who haven't necessarily, you know, they don't have the affinity for that. That's not wrapped up in their identity. And so they're okay with it, but the Jewish believers aren't. And so we just need to make sure that we're coming along these folks and not doing things to stumble them. So let's you know, let's let's help work them along. I mean, this is kind of like a low shelf, yeah. maybe a sermon kind of way of understanding. Yeah, it. But that, this, it's generally it, yeah. that kind of idea. Yeah, that condescending attitude mm-hmm. is exactly what Paul's against. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting in in that. I mean, if you you know, you guys understand church life and pastoring. If you try to live by the principles that Paul articulates in Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13, you're going to be in trouble every week. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if it's not, if it's not by faith, it's sin. But if, if it is by faith, then you can do what you want and let people make their own relationship with God determine what they do here. Mm-hmm. Well, you start trying to live this way. People are going to come to you with all kinds of things and saying, well, I think this is what God wants me to do. And Paul uses these sort of generic principles that if you try to turn those into rules, it's just not going to work. So um, he, I don't think he's, he wants people to get along. I call it redemptive peace. 
He hmm. wants a, a, a peace shaped by redemption that brings them together. But he knows that some of those Jewish believers are going to follow the Torah and they're going to eat kosher. And he knows some of these Gentile believers aren't, but they have got to eat together and hmm. welcome one another. They can't be divided over these issues. So hmm. it's like a first century version of modern toleration. So is, is Paul speaking to both of these groups then? Because obviously the, the privileged and the powerful, you can certainly see that Paul and the New Testament writers are not going to be affirming them in their power, especially in the Roman context where they look condescendingly down on everyone else. But then you can also see so much of Paul's arguments in Galatians and elsewhere where he is not approving of the Torah-bound Judaizing mentality of making Gentiles second-class citizens within the church. So are, did I categorize those two groups correctly and fairly in Romans? And is Paul and how does Paul address each of them then in Romans? The Paul, you know, this let, let's just say this is the the final word we get from Paul on these very issues. So Galatians is sort of like his first version. And Romans is the second version, 2.0. It's Galatians 2.0. Paul addresses, I believe his hang-up in the book of Romans is with Jewish believers who demand Gentiles to accept the Torah in order to be fully accepted to God. Okay? So 2 through 4, I think, is addressing the Jewish okay. believers. Or 1 through 4. Yeah. 9, 1 through 11, 12. Yeah. Right, right. He's addressing him again. But he also addresses Gentiles right. in chapter, especially in 11, 13 through the end of that chapter. And clearly in Romans chapter 6, when Paul's talking about baptism, should we just sin? You know, just we just sin because this magnifies God's grace mm -hmm. and his goodness. Uh that can't be an address to Jews. Mm -hmm. Jewish believers don't live like that. Okay, right. So I think that one is probably more directed at Gentile, a Gentile problem at least. Okay. Or maybe it's a stereotype of Jewish believers thinking this way. So uh, I think Paul is addressing both Jews and Gentiles. Um, there is a tendency today to think that this letter was written almost entirely to Gentile believers, and I don't think that works. Right, right. So I think it's written with an eye on Jewish believers in Rome who can't quite comprehend why Gentiles can come into the family of God and be so cavalier in their mm. attitude toward the law of Moses. Mm. Yeah, it almost has to in terms of have this Jewish address, at least a part of it, especially as Paul makes his appeal. I, I, I wish I could sacrifice myself for all for the sake of all of them. Um, yeah. Also, yeah, excellent. I know he, yeah, he says that, but uh, you know, like in one six, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Mm. So some people think, well, see, that proves that he's writing to Gentile believers, mm. and and today the tendency is to say exclusively Gentile believers, mm -hmm. and that the so-called weak are actually proselytes. These are Christian mm. Gentiles. Mm. who are demanding following the law of Moses. Uh -huh. So it's all Gentiles. Well, yeah. it just doesn't, it, it hasn't persuaded me. And I've, yeah. I've tried my best to 
to where no, that, the way you presented that, Romans one and two and three has kind of like this polemic against the Judaism yeah. actually makes perfect sense that, yeah. that he's speaking to the Jewish world. So, no, but not ask, Judaism, Jewish believers. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for yeah, yeah, Ju- yeah. yeah Jewish believers. So this kind of raises, and uh, you know, Vinny and I have been living in First Corinthians for the last number of weeks. What seems to be happening in First Corinthians that I think leads to a lot of misinterpretation is the fact that Paul is oftentimes citing his opponents, which he does in Galatians a little bit also, and then responding to them. Yeah. So we take this as Paul's words, but actually that's not Paul's words. That's Paul. That's their words, and Paul responds. This is obviously famous, and I know you agree in the eleven two through sixteen, where yeah. uh, it, he's citing them, and and then he contradicts them because like, like hey, wait, you know, a woman should have a head covering on. It's like, hey, look, her long hairs are head covering. So is he doing that in Romans then also where like you seem to indicate Romans 15, one that, that maybe Paul's like, okay, you're calling yourself this, but let's, let's, let's take it this way. And let's understand this. Okay. A recent book by Douglas Campbell argues that Romans 118 through four is actually the theology of Paul's opponent. Hmm. 118 through chapter four. Yeah, the whole okay. thing. And you don't get Paul's theology till you get to chapter five. What about the Christology of Romans 3, 21 and following? Uh, it's an insertion. Okay. It's an insert, okay. You know. right. So okay. I'm not sure that Campbell would agree with that. All right. I don't think anybody other than his PhD students are going to agree with him. on <laughs> that. And then, then when they get jobs, they're probably going to change their view. But okay. Campbell has really pushed this button hard. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he makes us aware that Romans 118 through 425 has a polemical edge to it in yeah, such a yeah. way yeah. that stuff is going on here that Paul is responding to. I think you're going to find the questions as the citation of what people are asking and criticizing Paul for. Okay. I think I think the answers that Paul gives to the questions are his own answers, but the questions could be coming from his opponents. So that's where I, that's where I would see okay. it. And it's I think it's really hard to discern which of these words are from Paul and which are the words that Paul is actually quoting. Yep. There are times in First Corinthians where this is pretty yep. obvious, you know. It's also everything, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's everything is beneficial. Yeah, but not everything, but not is, everything is profitable. Exactly. Yeah. So, it's like, yeah. 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 Uh, right. Those are, so so Richard yeah. Horsley has a, a quote here, and let me see what you think about this. He says, when Jewish writings from the Psalms to the Apocalypses of the Roman period spoke of the justice of God, they were not primarily concerned with spiritual questions of an individual's right standing with God, but with an end of an unjust social order and the hoped for vindication of the innocent against their enemies. He puts Jesus, obviously, in this category, right? It's anti-imperialistic. Is this what you see happening a little bit with the terms privilege and power that in, in the book of Romans? Well, um, Dick Horsley thinks everything is, you know, he, he pushes everything into this uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, Marxist framework, social justice, economic empire, etc. And he has... I think I think the strength of Horsley is to push us to see that a word like dikaiosune, righteousness, mm-hmm. translates tzedek, the Hebrew, which is translated in Latin, justicia, uh, justice, right. is, is not in the Jewish world, simply a private religious 
yes. holiness of a Wesleyan uh, uh, separationist. You know, that's not what he's doing. So I think I think Horsley has done well on that, and Tom Wright has done this as well. Yes. A lot of us in the historical Jesus movement in the eighties, nineties, and early two thousands were uh, into trying to show how Jesus's vision was about justice. And uh, then the question becomes, did Paul keep that up? And yes, I, I think he does in some ways. So I, I think Horsley has a, has a very important point that there is, when you use the word dikaiosune, righteousness, dikaio, to justify, in the book of Romans, it will not simply be your relationship to God or your standing with God but with um, a participation, as Mike Gorman would say it, in the work of God in the world, which is to make all things right. I think Tom Wright used the expression, to put the world to rights. Mm -hmm. I don't know where he came up with that, but it's really clever. Yeah, it's good. And I tried to use this in a book recently, and the editor says, what does this mean? Don't <laughs> you read Tom Wright? So... What would you say then is, could you summarize like Paul's message to the uh, strong or to the privileged? And okay. what was Paul's message in Romans to the weak uh, and the uh, those who are arguing for a, a Torah-based faith? To the strong, Paul would say, you need to seize with your boasting in your social status okay. and in your freedom in Christ and use your freedom and your status for the good of the entire community, including Jewish believers. Mm -hmm. To the Jewish believers, he would say, you need to seize demanding that Gentiles uh, embrace the observance of the Torah of Moses, because we are all accepted on the basis of faith. It is the Spirit that guides us how to live. And if you live in the Spirit, you do all that the law wanted us to do, and even more, and deeper. So he is our, and and I think both of them. He wants to say this: eat with one another, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. knock off this bickering every time you get together and arguing about the boundary markers between yourselves. Wonderful. So, okay. Scott, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, in in the modern world, meals don't share the same significance that the ancient world did. I mean, I I could go across the street at lunch right now, and I could walk into whatever Panera or something. And there could be two people at a booth eating and it could be because they're long lost acquaintances. They could be relatives. They could be business partner partners who don't care about each other, but they have to work over something. They could be working out a conflict or like it could be a number of reasons why someone is meeting together. I don't assume that because they're meeting together, they are welcoming one another. Uh, and, and so much of sharing a meal in the ancient world was that if I'm, if I'm sharing a meal with you, that means I'm welcoming you. How how does your perspective on how you view, you know, strong weak relations, especially as it come it pertains to things like food and hospitality, and that how do we how do we carry that over to the modern world where we might be not be coming up against the same exact issues that might divide a Christian congregation? Yeah, that's good. That's a good question. We we do not have the same embodiment of fellowship in food in table fellowship that they did in the first century, but we have a lot of it. We have a lot of this, you know, we, uh, I go out to coffee with, with pastor friends and we go to lunch and we do it, you know, for fellowship with one another. We, 
we go out to dinner with some friends of ours uh, routinely, um, you know, during the week and we have pizza or whatever. And it's, it's for fellowship with one mm-hmm. another. So I think there's a lot of this and I think we could probably have more, but we are a little bit more, well, we're a lot more self-sufficient than they were in the first century. And we have so much entertainment in our culture mm. that they did not have. Mm. So mm. their table fellowship was, in a sense, it was their version of entertainment mm-hmm. many times. This is what they did in the evening. Just think on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, where Peter probably lived. You know, you you eat there and you sit at the lake and you maybe catch a fish or something like that or dip in the water and cool off and and um this is just what they they did all of jesus's stories seem to come from table fellowship settings mm-hmm. this is this is the way people converse with one i think we could look at it sort of the way we do our work relationships we do our friend relationships the way we play golf the way we go for walks with friends we go to sporting activities it's mm-hmm. Those are all similar types of of events mm-hmm. in our world. Would you add to that the, the the Roman context of honor and shame, and that if you're eating with someone of a lower standing, that brings your honor down. So it's 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 economically and socially harmful, and I think that Jesus was was dealing with that. And then also the fact that for the church, communion is what they did each Sunday when they gather together. If we don't eat together, then it defies the very fabric of of our gathering on a weekly basis um you know eating together in the first century world usually demonstrated your social status by the seating arrangement and the privileges that you had so in first corinthians it appears that the wealthy are able to eat together and enjoy all the good food and then the the poor workers show up later and they get what's left over um so i i do but i do think it was not uncommon in the first century for upper class and lower class people to eat together mm-hmm. but you observe those social statuses uh nonetheless in that setting um so social status was something that was ingrained in the mind of a roman and a greek and a jew and jesus and paul blitz that idea at at significant radical levels so i i do believe that there's some some major challenges that are going on in the book of romans challenging social status mm-hmm. so i don't know if i wandered off your question no that's not. fine that's fine yeah all right very interesting very interesting what does this look like today you know and don't and don't we can we can edit it out if we don't like it, but, but so uh, feel free to go ahead and speak in terms of the modern church and situations and circumstances and conflicts that we have in our congregations today, Western American uh, churches yeah, yeah. that Romans is speaking directly to, and what would Paul say to that? Well, you know the book, um, it was pretty famous when I was teaching at North Park, Why Do All the Blacks Sit mm. Together in the Cafeteria? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Eating together is a safe space. It is an embodiment of fellowship and equality and acceptance at some level. Not always in not every settings, but it is a, a certain level of, of social dynamic. 
And I would say that we need to develop habits and practices that embody equality in Christ by the way we um, share our lives together when we are together. Mm-hmm. And when we are together, we want to make sure that we are not requiring social status designations for who we are. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, now I'll give you one of my examples because I've done this my whole career, and I did it in the when I first when I first started doing it as sort of a prophetic protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got my PhD, I refused to let my students call me doctor, and I could have, and it wasn't a rule at, at Trinity when I was teaching there. It was sort of the custom. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of respect or some kind of social status. But I I was a Gospel of Matthew specialist, and that Matthew 23, that we are all brothers, don't call anybody teachers, you know, mm-hmm. those are pretty strong words. And I thought, I'm going to practice this. So I've always gone by my first name. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a leveling exercise. But as I get older, and I, I've written more, and my name is known more, the status that I have comes with me, whether I have people call me Scott or not, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, I, I think I'm pretty sensitive to this issue and I want to do what I can to knock it, knock it down. And I, I would admit that I'm not as aware of my social status in church groups as I perhaps could be. I think at times I exercise power that I had no idea I was mm-hmm. exercising, mm-hmm. which is the, which is to me that's a good problem rather than someone who's always trying to protect his power or status. Right, right. I, I, I find to be unfair. Let's um, incarnate this conversation now to Romans twelve one and two because I think this really kind of encapsulates what um, the message of Paul is now. If, and tell me if you think if you agree or disagree with that. You know, now offer your bodies as living sacrifices, one acceptable to God. How do you think this fits in with Paul's argument there and its application for us today? I think the heart is Romans fourteen one, except the oh. one who's faith in me, and fifteen one. Okay. Um, you know, so but twelve one to twelve one to two has got has got a lot of attention. It's a pretty powerful statement. Um, Paul wants to convert pagan Gentiles in their language or use their language for Jewish believers as well as to take an, an ordinary sacrificial uh, sacrifice image and metaphor and say, this is the way we are to live. We are to become everyday sacrifices Mm -hmm. of ourselves. And Paul sees this operating in two ways. Um, It's going to be a refusal to be conformed to the world, to the way of Rome, Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a transformation of our life into a way that gives us spiritual discernment to know how to live in our world, in our context, in our day, in our way. So I think that's what Romans 12, 1 to 2, it's sort of, you know, it's really hard to know exactly when he says, uh, in view of God's mercy, is that all of Romans 1 through 11? Is that right, yeah, right, 9 right. through 11? Is that just 11? Is that 5 through 11? What is, is this 5 through 8? It's hard to know. But he wants people to make, to to turn their themselves 
into an everyday sacrifice for the sake of others. Immediately mm -hmm. goes into the body of Christ imagery in chapter right. 12. So you're giving yourself for the sake of others. And in this process, you are turning away from the world, the present evil age, and you are being conformed to the image of Christ, which he brings up more clearly in Romans 8. But he seems to be going in that. That idea of transformation is to be morphed into a, a new image. Would you say then that what we see in chapter 14 is in a sense, an application of yes. what he states in 12 one. So be a living exactly. sacrifice. Well, what does that look like? Oh, it's, it's like not stumbling your brother and actually loving them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That is the illustration. The paradigm embodiment of his principle hmm. is the willingness of the strong and the weak to transcend their differences mm -hmm in a unity in Christ that they have because right. of redemption in Christ. Right. Excellent. This is like the, we don't have to do any more podcasts. Really. I think we just summarized the entire new Testament. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. So let's finish this up here with a couple of thoughts. We've had, obviously we discussed with you before we went on, on air that we had uh, Daryl Bach and Gary Birch come in and discuss Romans nine through 11 and go back and forth. And I did a presentation on it as well. You know, it's something that's been been part of my life and, and work. For a long time, the issue of Israel and the Palestinian issue and that crisis there as well. What is your thought on what Romans nine through eleven is doing in that and those questions, those larger questions? Okay. See, I think Romans nine one through eleven twelve is addressed to the weak, the powerless believers, in their wondering how can the people of Israel be the elect people of God. And all these Gentiles coming in and Jews not believing. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. And I think Paul wants to affirm their, their election at some level. He says something that is so important, and it's, it's a constant debate in Christian theological circles. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So right, I, you right. Know, that's a Romans 9, 6. Right. But I think Romans 9 is an illustration of the surprising adjustments and work of God in the history. So to include Gentiles is just one more surprise mm -hmm. that God has always been doing mm -hmm. in the history of Israel. You can't lay claim to your status on the basis of your birth. It's up to what God decides he's going to do. Mm. He then kind of almost starts over again at the beginning of chapter 10, to say, okay, Jews have all this privilege, and I don't want to deny that, but they, you know, you have to believe. Uh, he wants them to have faith. And then the second half of chapter 11, he turns to the Gentiles and says, you know, you've been grafted into the people of God, but this doesn't mean that, that you're safe and secure and you can do whatever you want. No, just as Israel can be lopped off or snipped off mm -hmm. uh, from the rootstock, that's from John Barclay, um, so Gentiles can too if they don't believe. So it's almost like, you know, this is Paul attempting to explain the mystery of why God is doing what God is doing with Jews and Gentiles and still be faithful to his covenant promises to Israel. 
So yeah. explain Romans eleven twenty five. That was actually going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do with that? Well, I hope no one asks. You know, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult text. I Let's go ahead think, and read it for the sake of for the sake of those who, yeah, those who are listening. Yeah, by the way, and then all Israel will be saved. Okay, yeah, there is, you go. Uh, yeah, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Yeah, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, what is it? What is the? I thought it was eleven twenty-five. It's, it is. You, you had it right. Yep. And, oh, well, I know. All, all Israel will be saved is eleven twenty-six. Yeah, twenty-six. Yeah, yeah, twenty-five. 26. So. I think we have to take 9-6 seriously. Not all Israel right. is Israel. So the Israel of God that Paul has in mind here are believers in Christ. Now, Jason Staples has a brand new book out. Hmm. Well, he has a one's a year and a half or two years old, another one coming out, in which he demonstrates that the word Israel is a broader word than Jew, mm -hmm. than Judean. Judean is more connected to Judea, Judea, and Israel encompasses a, a larger group so that it would include, let's say, the northern Israel people who are now not distinguishable, and it will include um, Gentile believers in Jesus who get incorporated into the rootstock of Israel. So I tend I tend to go in that direction, but I'll be honest with you. This is mm -hmm. this is a fight for the specialists in Pauline scholarship who have never figured this out or at least right. agreed with one another. So I don't want to get. I'm not too confident, in other words, about how how we have to interpret this. But I do yeah. think I do think nine six really matters. Yeah, I do too. And I, and yeah. I get nervous about anybody who thinks modern day Israel. Is what he's got in mind here. Well, I think people read Revelation seven and the hundred forty-four thousand incorrectly, yeah. and then they read that back into Romans eleven and go, "Oh, say, so see, there's some future remnant that's going to be saved," and that's what Paul's getting at there. And it's like, well, first off, these passages have nothing to do with each other necessarily. So I, yeah. I look at it and think it's eschatological, but I think eschatological in the sense that it began with with Christ. And the fact that there are Jewish believers today is evidence of the fact that they're all coming in, and at some point in time, all Israel is the the, the complete body of Jews and Gentile believers, and at some point in time that will reach its fullness. But yeah. again, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to have that with some level of dogmatics that everyone else is. You're going to have trouble even with with obviously as as for those of you listening, you know, Scott McKnight's like, hey, I'm not going to, mm -hmm. you know, lay my foot here and here. He's written several commentaries in the Book of Romans and translated the New Testament. I think it tells us all that we should we should probably be careful. I mean, I listen to a lot of people talk about this passage, and everybody has some confident answers. And when it's all done, there's about twelve of them, and and yeah. uh, you go, okay, right. it's not all that right. clear. Hey, so, anything else? Sorry, well, I really appreciate getting to talk to you about Romans. You know, um, I'm a Jesus scholar; that's my field. Mm -hmm. And when I came to North Park Northern Seminary, uh, I had to teach Paul for the first time in my life. Hmm. So I wanted to work on on different parts and uh, for a long time i believe that we need to pay more attention to romans 14 and 15 so i brought that into the, the conversation and now i'm going back to jesus studies so <laughs> <laughs> gonna write a book on the pharisees and jesus excellent oh excellent 
So yeah. um, excellent. All right. Hey, I look forward to maybe connect, catching up with you in a week yeah. in, uh, oh, in Denver. But Scott, we so appreciate, you know, your time that you've spent with us this time. It will, um, it, you know, we mentioned in the intro that we had uh, you and your daughter, Laura, on, I want to say it was probably the summer of 2021, where we talked yeah. about your uh, your book, uh, A Church Called Tove, which is still a fantastic resource. I can't recommend highly enough. I've told so many of my peers about that. It, curious on that. Do you guys have a follow-up on that book? Yeah, we do. It's called Pivot. It's, mm. uh, I'm going to send it to the publisher today. Excellent. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah, a good it's feeling. It's all edited. It's all edited. Yeah. I know we're eagerly anticipating uh, that work because Tove uh, has been such a great impact, I think, well, to a number you. of churches. So just yeah. thank you for your guys' transparency and that and your scholarship and what you offer, just a range of people in the Christian community from layperson to a uh, pastor scholar. We just so, uh, you know, just are thankful for that and, yeah. and the time you spent with us today. Yeah. Thank, and, you. thank yeah. you. And your integrity, I think, in the midst of it all. As well. Yes. So awesome. well, thank you. Yes. All right. Thanks. All right, everyone. See thank you soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.